0: The Old Testament reading is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, page 431 in your Bibles. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, past the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were there to do the work, that were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in now, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they had said, let us start building so they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, what is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we, his servants, are going to start building but you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As most of you know, we are engaged in a fall sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, and I've been choosing New Testament readings to go along with our reading from Nehemiah, either to illuminate what the Old Testament is saying or uh, to show how a biblical character like Nehemiah uh, actually anticipates or or points forward to Jesus. Uh, Jesus wasn't like uh, Nehemiah in in every way, of course, and I don't mean to suggest that they are somehow clones of each other, but there are similarities which are uh, intentional and that I I think we should pay attention to. Uh, In several important ways, Nehemiah uh, anticipates the work of Christ. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, some essential qualities of leadership. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, this trait of humility, which is demonstrated in both uh, people, the the inner strength they had in the face of uh, criticism and opposition. Uh, Here in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, this is our our New Testament uh, reading for today, Uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is uh, taking time uh, by himself to pray. He has uh, gone off, and he has not so much as left a note for the disciples to uh, let them know where he is, uh, which, as we're going to hear, causes quite a bit of concern. Uh, the, the disciples always seem to be on the verge of panic, and they are presented that way almost throughout the the, the Gospels. And this situation uh, is certainly an illustration of that. Uh, remember, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and, and the group has not yet come together. They have not yet... Uh, gelled, and and so there's a great deal to do. Uh, And yet, this is what I want you to see, Uh, Jesus is taking lots of time. He's taking time to uh, pray and and to be quiet and to find himself in alignment with the uh, purpose and will of God. It's extraordinary when you think about it, and uh, we'll see this more clearly as we dig into the Nehemiah story in a bit. So, uh, Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 35. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he, Jesus, got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, well, uh, Nehemiah has finally arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, He has traveled the uh, 800 miles or about uh, 1,300 kilometers between the Persian capital and uh, Jerusalem, uh, he has his letters from the Persian king Artaxerxes authorizing him to rebuild the wall of the city, he has the timber or the, the lumber that he needs to replace these gates uh, which were burned by the Babylonian army 70 years before this. Uh, Nehemiah has, has finally arrived at the moment uh, for which he has risked uh, everything. Uh, Remember uh, that he uh, gave up quite a good job in the the palace uh, as an advisor to the king. Remember that he had asked for a a transfer, so to speak, uh, to one of the least attractive cities uh, in the Persian Empire. We may have this idealized image of what Jerusalem is, uh, but in the 5th century B.C., uh, when Nehemiah first laid eyes on this uh, city, it was nothing to write home about. Uh, Nehemiah's uh, parents and grandparents had told him about a city uh, which no longer existed. There was a great deal of work to be done. So, uh, I mean, what does Nehemiah do? (laughs) This is so striking and so unexpected that I would like us to think about this for a moment. Uh, This may well be the biggest moment of Nehemiah's life. Uh, Remember that uh, he had uh, emptied out his pension plan. and and gambled everything, gambled may not be exactly the right word, but uh, he had gambled everything of worldly value uh, on this project that now lay in front of him. And and what does he do? Well, verse 11 seems to say that he did nothing for three days. Uh, By the way, uh, you may want to think about another three-day period Uh, In the New Testament, during which the whole world was waiting in eager anticipation, Friday afternoon to uh, Sunday morning, this three-day period becomes quite important later on. Uh, Last week, as I uh, uh, prepared for today, uh, I thought about those times in my life when uh, I started a new position. Uh, At the last church I served, as a matter of fact, my first official day was uh, Easter Uh, with three uh, very full services on that morning, beginning with a sunrise service in a lovely park across the street from uh, the church. And as you can imagine, I spent days uh, preparing uh, and making sure that was the best Easter sermon I was capable of preaching. Uh, In another church, I arrived in the office almost a a week ahead of the official start date to get all of my books carefully arranged on the uh, the shelves, and then I met individually with uh, the members of the staff so that When the official start date came around, I was ready to hit the ground running. In fact, I proudly announced all of that to my church on my first Sunday as if to say, aren't you impressed (laughs) with uh, uh, how diligent uh, I am and how eager I am to get started? And if they were, they never said so. So So what if, uh, think about this, what if on my first day here at IPC, I had tossed the two or three boxes of uh, books that I brought along into my office and then announced, uh, I'm off to the Benedictine monastery uh, for uh, a few days of prayer and uh, contemplation. I'll see you later in the week. You know, I could be wrong. I may uh, have uh, misjudged you, uh, but I think you would have been astonished if I had said that. Uh, Maybe you would have been impressed, maybe, I don't know, maybe you would have been pleased, but I think you would have been puzzled. Uh, That's not what we expect from our leaders. We expect them to take charge, and and, and we expect them to take charge right away. We expect them to, to prove themselves to us. Uh, As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I I do not have a a business degree and and I have never taken management classes, but I like to read. And I remember reading a story one time about a new uh, corporate leader and on his first day, uh, according to the story, he took a bucket of black paint uh, out to the parking lot and this was in full view of all the employees in this company. They were all pressed against the windows looking down uh, at at their new leader uh, in the parking lot with his bucket of paint. And he proceeded to uh, paint the yellow stripes out of all the reserved parking spaces. And and the message was, if you are that important to this company, you should be the first one here in the morning. (laughs) And after reading that, I never again asked for a reserved uh, uh, parking space. I mean, message received. Uh, One more story uh, about that. I I remember reading uh, one time a a biography of Lord Mountbatten, uh, who was a a British naval officer, uh, admiral of the fleet, in fact, at one time, and also the uncle of Prince Charles. And of all the interesting information that I learned about Lord Mountbatten in that book, the one story that has stayed with me all these years is that before assuming command of a ship, Lord Mountbatten uh, would learn the names, think about this, he would learn the names of each and every sailor on board that ship. Uh, he was a well-loved naval officer. And one of the reasons, not surprisingly, is that he knew the name of every sailor before he took command of that ship. So, <laughs> I read that and I thought, well, I should be doing that. You know What a, what a great idea. And uh, I have tried my best over the years. I am no Lord Mountbatten. Uh, Here's what I want to say about all of that. The the first days, uh, even the first hours in a a, a new position are are critically important, right? They set the tone and and the expectation for everything that follows. And so what does Nehemiah do? Uh, He does nothing. Well, not exactly nothing, but uh, 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 Charles Swindoll, uh, whose book I'm using Uh, as an inspiration for this sermon series, says that before there can be meaningful activity, there must always be meaningful solitude. Uh, I wonder, uh, especially for those of us who are in uh, leadership positions, uh, I'm thinking of those of us who are moms and dads, and grandparents, and Sunday school teachers, and youth group leaders, and so on. I wonder uh, if you have taken time to cultivate an inner life. Successful leaders, uh, this is Swindoll's logic, successful leaders know how to be alone. They know how to spend time alone, and they know how to think and pray and, and simply be by themselves. Right? It, it was a, a famous American basketball coach of all people who, who once said, uh, a character is what you are when no one is looking. So when you are alone, uh, what do you do? Uh, Where does your mind go? Uh, What are all the things you think about when you are by yourself? And I'm serious about asking these questions, not to make you feel uncomfortable, although maybe some of us should feel uh, uncomfortable. I I ask these questions because Nehemiah uh, demonstrates this important quality or trait which later shows up in Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Namely, that leaders are people who, who lead from the inside out. And if you've never heard that expression before, I, I think it's one to, uh, to, to finally learn. All of us, leaders or not, uh, live our lives from the inside out. So uh, whatever we cultivate inside... Whatever we spend time thinking about when we are alone is eventually what shows up outside. Uh, you may be able to fake uh, a rich interior life for a while, but eventually, and this usually happens in times of crisis or conflict, uh, uh, what's on the inside will eventually become obvious for everyone to see. Uh, so all of us, uh, young and old, live our lives from the inside out. And Nehemiah uh, Uh, Later, Jesus himself demonstrated that for us. Uh, I want to move along here, because there's at least one other point that uh, I want us to see uh, in this wonderful story. After spending time alone, and after inspecting the walls of the city at night, uh, not in full view of the the local population, Nehemiah formulated his plan. I mean, this was a deliberate man. If if you get nothing else from uh, reading this uh, political memoir... Uh, Remember that he was a very deliberate man. If you look up the word deliberate in the dictionary, you should see a picture of Nehemiah uh, right there. Uh, In fact, there's a word in this story that I I want you to see and and remember. Two times in verses 13 to to 15, Nehemiah says that he inspected the wall. Well, in English, the word inspect doesn't carry a a whole lot of weight. Uh, uh, But the, the Hebrew word which Nehemiah uses here suggests that he was looking very carefully. Right? There's even a medical connotation to the word that he chooses. It's as if Nehemiah is a physician who's feeling the glands to see if they're swollen and if there might be an infection there. He is very close to the situation in Jerusalem. Now, before we hear anything about a, a plan of action, this leader knew the situation better than anyone else, or at least as well as anyone in Jerusalem at that time. And it's at this point, that, long last, uh, that Nehemiah is ready to go public. So uh, uh, he finally stands in front of the city council, and he makes his case. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I uh, jokingly said that Nehemiah showed up in Jerusalem wearing fancy clothes and expensive shoes and and having a sophisticated-sounding Persian accent. I don't actually know if any of those things are true. uh, I'm guessing he probably did speak with a a Persian accent, but I don't know what clothes uh, he wore. But the point is this. He needed to make the sales pitch of his life. Uh, 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 Ethnically, He was one with these people, but in every other way, they must have sensed that he was an outsider. Uh, Remember that when the uh, Egyptian armies uh, came through and conquered Jerusalem, they dragged everyone off into exile who could be of use to them, and they left behind the poor and the elderly and the disabled and and anyone who would not be of of use to them. Uh, So those were the people who were left Uh, to fend for themselves, and and reading between the lines, you, you sense that the city, already ruined, fell into further disrepair. And now here, standing before them, was someone who had lived his entire life, surrounded by wealth, and all the finer things in life. Ask yourself, would you have trusted this man? Would you have been happy to see him? Would you have been ready to to volunteer for the the back-breaking work of rebuilding the wall of this city? I mean, I can't say that the the people Nehemiah faced were hostile, but but put it this way, convincing them to get on board was a tall order. Uh, And and guess what? He did it. Uh, uh, Look again at at verse 17. Uh, These are Nehemiah's words. You see the bad situation that we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Well, there are two reasons, I think, that that Nehemiah succeeded in in this situation. And three, if you remember that God was with him. right? But two reasons that his approach was just right. Two reasons we need to learn from in, in this story. The first was honesty. The city was desolate and, 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 and anyone could see that, of course, but Nehemiah had the courage to say it and, and to name it and to identify what the problem was. He didn't blame anyone. He, he didn't ask them what in the world they've been doing for the last 70 years. He didn't shame them by suggesting that maybe they liked to live this way. No, he simply and, and courageously said what was true. So this is a bad situation we are in. And then, uh, that leads me to the second reason uh, Nehemiah was successful here. Uh, Did you hear the pronouns that Nehemiah used? It it was uh, we and us. You know, three times in, in just a couple of sentences, Nehemiah puts everyone together on the same level. We, us, our, come, let us rebuild the wall. We are in this situation together. Uh, one further point here, there are basically two ways to motivate people. This is my uh, my reading in, in uh, management. Uh, one is an extrinsic motivation, the other is an intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic uh, motivations are bonuses and vacations and, and uh, promotions. So one way to get someone to uh, do a, a bit of hard work and to meet a goal is to reward that person with those things. Nehemiah could have said, if you help me do this, I'll... I'll pay you handsomely. Uh, He didn't do that, uh, obviously, and and maybe he was not in a position to do that. We don't know. But in any case, the the motivation uh, uh, Nehemiah used was an intrinsic uh, motivation. Studies show that bonuses and and vacations and, and promotions work to a certain degree, but always, always, the best way to get someone to do something is to appeal to something deeper. Right, a, a, a sense of pride, maybe, a sense of patriotism. Uh, I have spent uh, most of my adult life, uh, you won't be surprised to hear this, uh, all of my adult life working in a church setting. And uh, one of the delights uh, of my life has been working with people who have this intrinsic motivation. Uh, of course, we like to be paid. <laughs> and uh, we enjoyed our vacations. Uh, But on every church staff that it has ever been my privilege to to be a part of, there has always been something else. And it is wonderful. Uh, We did what we did because we believed in it. We we always saw ourselves as part of uh, something big, a cause that was bigger than ourselves. Uh, It was kingdom work. We were building God's kingdom on earth, and it was one coffee hour, one pastoral visit, one choir practice at a time. And and sometimes we needed to be reminded of that, this larger cause. Sometimes I needed to be reminded of the larger cause. But most of the time, and this is astonishing, that belief was what kept us going. Look, rebuilding the wall was important, sort of. But there was something more than a wall at stake for Nehemiah. He was building a people of God. He was building a home for God and God's people. Nehemiah would later become governor. That happens toward the end of the book. And it was this vision that gave him his satisfaction and his motivation and his purpose. The wall was secondary. Now tell me, and I, I, I mean, I ask you this in all seriousness, uh, what wall are you working on? I mean, and, and, and why are you doing it? Why are you putting the effort into it that you are? Uh, if you are serving coffee at coffee hour, if you are helping to collate and, and fold the bulletins on Thursday afternoon in the church office, if you are opening your home to a home group during the week, what is it that you are doing or building? These jobs don't pay very well, as maybe you have noticed. So what do you think you are building? A brick here and a brick there may not seem like much, but together we are building a city where God might come and live, where God's people will find peace and rest and wholeness, where broken lives might find healing, and where dashed hopes eventually become new dreams we all have a part or a role to play in this building project. And sometimes that role that you are playing may seem small and uh, insignificant, as though it doesn't count for very much. But I want you to know that it is very, very important. Right? That, that with every brick you lay, you are building the kingdom of God. And that is no small thing. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Nehemiah and the example he has set for us. We pray that we may find something in this man to incorporate into our own lives. We pray for this vision, a cause that is larger than ourselves. We pray that every time we lay a brick, we may realize that we are building something so much bigger. We pray this in Christ's name.